This is the Daily Signal podcast for Friday, February 11th. I'm Doug Blair. And I'm Virginia Allen. All right, picture this scenario with me. An 18-year-old in Canada goes to his pastor and says that he's struggling with same-sex attraction but doesn't want to be. The young man asks his pastor for help, and the pastor agrees to talk with the young man about ways that he might be able to overcome that same-sex attraction. But under a newly passed Canada law, that pastor is now at risk of a prison sentence. Canada recently passed legislation banning any treatment, practice, or service that is designed to change a person's gender identity, gender expression, or sexual orientation. Those who don't abide by this new law could face years in prison. On today's show, I talk with the Communications Director for Free to Care in Canada, Jojo Ruba. Mr. Ruba explains what the so-called conversion therapy ban means for the people of Canada and if he thinks America is at risk of adopting similar legislation. But before we get to that conversation with Jojo Ruba, let's hit our top news stories of the day. A group of Republican lawmakers are demanding the FBI be held accountable. The GOP members say the FBI is refusing to take responsibility for using counterterrorism resources to target concerned parents at local school board meetings. House Judiciary Committee ranking member Representative Jim Jordan and 17 other GOP members sent a letter to FBI Director Christopher Wray on Thursday. The lawmakers write in the letter that the FBI has stonewalled their many questions about the FBI's use of resources to target parents. They write, Your response declined to answer in detail any questions we posed or to provide any documents we sought. And they added that the FBI director's response regrettably highlights the FBI's pattern of refusing to accept accountability for its actions and explains why public trust in the FBI's senior leadership has eroded so significantly. This situation stems back to the fall, when the National School Boards Association sent a letter to President Joe Biden asking for help looking into rising tensions and threats of violence at school board meetings. The letter stated that such threats could be characterized as a form of domestic terrorism and hate crimes. The GOP members say U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland then directed federal law enforcement resources, including the FBI, to investigate concerned parents at school board meetings. Jordan says that even though the FBI is not answering Republican lawmakers' questions, he remains committed to fully examining the FBI's use of counterterrorism resources in relation to school board meetings. Per a Labor Department report released Thursday, consumer prices increased by 7.5% last month compared to last year. This rise in prices marks the highest since February of 1982. Here to explain how this impacts your wallet is Heritage Foundation economic expert Matt Dickerson. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Excellent. So what exactly do these numbers mean for your average American? Well, it means that the prices of everything that people rely on are going up and up and up. These record high prices of goods and services are going up and they're being driven by higher prices for food and electricity and shelter. And those are the things that everybody relies on. 
So why is this happening? What is the impetus behind this? It's bad policies, right? It's it's at the same time that the federal government is pumping trillions and trillions of dollars into the economy, they're implementing policies that are restricting the supply of goods and services, right? So they're expanding welfare without work. They're adding new regulations. They're adding new taxes. And that just makes it harder to produce the things that people need. So how do we get out of this then? How do we get inflation back manageable and down? Policymakers need to reverse all the things that are driving up the prices of goods and services. Uh, instead of driving inflation, they should be attacking it. And we should be doing things like stopping welfare without work. We should be lifting regulations so we can expand the supply of energy. We should be allowing people to engage in flexible work instead of trying to force people to join unions and drive up prices of labor. Well, that was Matt Dickerson, a Heritage Foundation economic expert. Matt, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Here is an interesting number for you all. In 2021, under President Joe Biden, illegal immigrant deportations fell by 70 percent compared to 2020, according to a report from the Washington Free Beacon. Immigration and Customs Enforcement deported only 55,590 illegal immigrants in 2021. That's the smallest number in five years. The decline in deportations comes as America faces a surge of illegal immigrants trying to cross our southern border. Now stay tuned for my conversation with Jojo Ruba as we discuss Canada's recent ban on conversion therapy. As conservatives, sometimes it feels like we're constantly on defense against bad ideas. Bad philosophy, revisionist history, junk science, and divisive politics. But here's something I've come to understand. When faced with bad ideas, it's not enough to just defend. If we want to save this country, then it's time to go on offense. Conservative principles are ideas that work. Individual responsibility, strong local communities, and belief in the American dream. As a former college professor and current president of the Heritage Foundation, my life's mission is to learn, educate, and take action. My podcast, The Kevin Roberts Show, is my opportunity to share that journey with you. I'll be diving into the critical issues that plague our nation, having deep conversations with high-profile guests, some of whom may surprise you. And I want to ensure freedom for the next generation. Find The Kevin Roberts Show wherever you get your podcasts. I am joined on the show today by Jojo Ruba, the Communications Director for Free to Care in Canada and a Christian faith leader and apologist with Faith Beyond Belief. Mr. Ruba, thank you so much for joining us today all the way from Canada. <laughs> well, thanks for having me, Virginia. Really glad to be here. Well, this is uh, an important conversation that we're having and one that I think mm -hmm. is on the minds of people really, uh, not just in Canada, but for certainly in America as well. You know, in America, there has been several proposed bills, such as the Equality Act, that would ban the practice of what is known as conversion therapy. And conversion therapy, we're going to talk more about the definition, but can kind of broadly be defined as any treatment, practice, or service that's designed to change a person's gender identity, gender expression, or sexual orientation. And on January 7th, a conversion therapy ban took effect in Canada. Mr. Ruba, I know that you have followed this legislation very, very closely. Mm -hmm. You've spoken with Canada's political leaders about this bill. Can you just explain this bill a little bit further and what it actually does? 
Sure. I, I think a lot of people, when they hear the term conversion therapy, they think of movies like Boy Erased, where people are sent to a camp and beaten with Bibles. And, and often it's associated with Christians because Christians very much care about sexuality and gender because God does. And, and God has given us a beautiful design for sexuality and gender. And, and the thought process is we need to make this a terrible practice of, of harming children particularly, but even adults. Uh, criminal, so that people won't be tortured just because they're gay or they're transgender. Mm-hmm. That That's the mindset. That's the initial reaction that people have uh, when they hear about conversion therapy. Uh, the problem is that isn't what was passed as a law in Canada. And in this, in Canada, unlike the U.S., uh, the government, the federal government actually makes criminal law. So the states, uh, the provinces, our states don't do that. And this is the first time it's actually been criminalized. And, and I can tell you, Virginia, in terms of what the, the precedent is here, is the strategy being used by, by those pushing for this is they're arguing for one thing, the banning of criminalization of uh, torture, but they actually pass laws that do much more than that. And in fact, the word torture or coercion or even force is not even in the law that was passed. So what we actually have instead is a broadly defined law, as you said, that captures any kind of practice, treatment, or service that would help someone reduce their non-heterosexual attraction or behavior, even if that person isn't trying to change their sexual orientation. Hmm. So someone who's wanting to uh, reduce a gay porn addiction or wanting to be faithful to their spouse, even a same-sex spouse, and not want to engage in sexual activity outside of that uh, marriage, because gay marriage, same-sex marriage is legal here as well, uh, they couldn't get counseling to reduce that behavior according to the wording and the definition of the law. And so as someone who's followed this law, I can tell you the arguments being made to to push for this law that were made and that are made to to enforce this law uh, started in 2015 when Ontario, our biggest province, passed their first conversion therapy ban in Canada, and it only affected children at that time. So it's been it's been uh, different provinces and territories. And here in my province of Alberta, municipal governments have been passing laws using definitions of conversion therapy that are as just as broad as the federal one. Uh, and, and what's happened, uh, Virginia, interestingly enough, is that even though we've had these laws now, at least half the country had these similar kinds of laws before the bill, the criminal bill was passed, uh, there has been zero people charged or let alone convicted under any of these laws. Mm. Because at the end of the day, it's not actually something that they can enforce because these laws are so, like I said, broadly worded. Even a conversation like we're having now, if I were to publicize, say, my own personal story or be able to publicize uh, information that would encourage people to reduce their non-heterosexual behavior, that would be promoting conversion therapy. If I was promoting a service that helped people find that that help, and I could go to jail for two years. Wow. So, right? so you would be in violation of this new bill. That's right. So uh, when I actually got counseling for my unwanted non-heterosexual attractions, when I was a university student, I went to the staffer at a Christian club that I was part of at university, and she wrote down, I still remember it, uh, a phone number for me of a local Christian counselor. 
And that counselor wasn't like the best. A lot of people of that time, 20 years ago, didn't know from the Christian community how to handle sexuality issues very well. But but I was very happy that I had someone to talk to. And that's all we did. We prayed. We read the Bible. There was no electroshock therapy. There was nothing like that. And as a consenting adult, I was glad to have that conversation, Virginia. That conversation now would cause that, that counselor to go to jail for five years. And my friend who wrote the phone number down, she could go to jail for promoting conversion therapy for two. Wow. I mean, it, it feels almost unbelievable to hear someone say that, that just the sheer fact of, of having a conversation when it's sought out, you know, for, for a young man to go to, to a pastor or a counselor and say, you know, I'm, I'm struggling with same-sex attraction and I don't want to be. Can you help mm-hmm. me? Uh, and for that, that uh, adult's hands to essentially be tied Really right. unbelievable. Well, and that was the big change. So it was really fascinating because the prior iteration of the bill, Bill C-6, actually excluded consenting adults from having at least free conversations. So that would mean, you know, getting counseled by your priest or sitting down with your pastor to have a conversation. And, and obviously this happens all the time. We talk to pastors all the time who, who have these kinds of conversations now. Uh, and that was protected because the justice minister himself publicly stated the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which is like our Bill of Rights, would be very hard to uh, under that for, uh, for the government to get after consenting adults. Within a span of less than three months after a federal election, the government let, listened to the socialist parties in the parliament and now included consenting adults in this bill. And Virginia, that's not even the half of it. They actually broke, apparently, their own law in passing this bill because they rammed it through parliament without any kind of public input. So when they came back after the election, this was in, in uh, the fall of uh, last year, uh, they reintroduced this bill, which was now Bill C-4, which, which had this inclusion of consenting adults being prevented from having conversations. And, and, and I always point out, by the way, as an aside, this actually harms LGBTQ-identified Canadians even more than anyone else, because it actually criminalizes the kind of conversations they're allowed to have. In this case, uh, the the government that was saying three months prior, oh, we can't pass a law affecting consenting adults, had a complete 180, passed this bill. And here's really what's challenging. The conservative opposition party did not challenge it. They said, well, uh, we've already had this debate, so we don't want to bypass. We don't want to have this uh, struggle in in our own caucus. We don't want to have to deal with this in terms of public attention. So let's just get this passed as soon as possible. When they're not supposed to do that, when this massive change of definition and who this bill affects had happened in the bill. And what what uh, what one uh, Christian lawyer pointed out, uh, Virginia, was this actually is a violation of the liberal government's own law because they had just passed a, a law a couple of years ago saying that the Justice Department is required to come out with what's called a charter statement explaining what potential charter impacts or right our rights, uh, our Canadian charter rights, are going to be affected by a criminal law. And what's happened is this charter statement actually listed several clear violations, potentially, that this new criminal sanction has, but this wasn't released before the vote in Parliament. It was actually released afterwards when the law had already taken place, mm. has already been passed. So that's actually a clear violation of their own law. Mm. I was really, really fascinated to see that it was a unanimous vote. That surprised me because mm-hmm. this is this is the third time that a bill like this 
came up uh, for a vote. And obviously, you know, the previous two, like you mentioned, didn't pass. But then to see a unanimous vote in Canada, really, really interesting. Ultimately, who was behind this bill? Who? What was the driving force behind the ban on conversion therapy? Right. Well, I mean, we can go all the way back to the activists here. Actually, in my home province, uh, there's a man here named Dr. Christopher Wells who has been pushing for these kinds of laws in Alberta, where my where I live, just north of Montana. And, and he is an activist. He's not a doctor, but he works in sociology, sexology as a university professor. And when he began to push for these laws, like I said, many of these laws, not all, but many of these laws were so broadly worded, it would capture all kinds of things we would do at church. And in fact, he specifically mentioned prayer. So if, you were to, if I were to ask you to pray for me because I struggle with, the, say, same-sex porn addiction— uh, to help reduce that same-sex behavior or that uh, non-heterosexual behavior, uh, that is potentially conversion therapy, according to his understanding. In fact, he testified at the city of Edmonton where he's at, uh, and I was actually in the room, so this is, not second, this is not secondhand information, Virginia. I was listening to him, that there was a, a, a conference, a Christian conference promoting conversion therapy in his city and had thousands of people attending it. And I, I was sort of scratching my head what that could that have been. And it turned out he was actually referencing a large Christian music conference that had nothing to do with conversion therapy. It did have a panel discussion where I was part of that, where people like myself shared our personal testimonies of coming to Christ out of an LGBTQ background. And that is what he considers conversion therapy. He, he compares that to torture of Virginia. And that's what he's been pushing across the country. He managed to pass these laws municipally in our province, and now has taken these laws and has taken these laws to pass it federally. So I, I actually looked at 180 definitions of conversion therapy across the U.S. and around the world, places like Germany and, and even places in uh, Michigan, right, or Florida. Mm. And there has been not one governmental law that has defined conversion therapy as broadly as the one that's been passed in Canada. I've looked at all the medical definitions by the Canadian and American Psychological Associations. They do not define conversion therapy as someone simply wanting to reduce their non-heterosexual behavior or attractions. It's always in the context of changing orientation. And whether or not you agree with that, there's a whole conversation we can have with that. It's simply dishonest to argue for one thing when you're actually trying to pass something much broader. Ah. So now, under this new bill in Canada, uh, if an individual goes to their pastor and simply asks for prayer, saying, I'm struggling with same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria, can you pray for me? And that individual sits with them and prays with them are they at risk of going to prison for five years? Well, if that prayer is to help reduce that attraction or behavior, the answer is absolutely yes. Mm. Be but here, here's the challenge, and this is why uh, it really what's happened here is the LGBTQ activists, not the community, there's lots of wonderful people in the community, but the activists themselves have weaponized their arguments. What they've done is create a, a massive chill effect because these, these laws are all complaint-based. So if someone else, say that person getting the counseling, were to tell their teacher, oh, my, my pastor counseled me, I'm so glad, I feel so much better now because I'm, I know he's helping me out, that teacher can then go to the police and complain about the pastor. Mm -hmm. And the RCMP in criminal law in Canada must investigate it. Wow. So are you speaking with, with counselors, with pastors? I mean, it really sounds like individuals 
who who are having who normally have these types of conversations have been put in a really impossible situation. What what are they saying? What are they going to do? Uh, Virginia, I mean, that, this is really like the problem, isn't it? Like I said, it's going to be very hard to prove uh, the kind of things that they're saying in the sense of, I think the smart people who've put past this law don't actually want it to go to court because they recognize just how clearly it violates the charter rights, of, especially of consenting adults. So what, what it's done instead is cause uh, a chill effect, a, a fear throughout the church. I know of one large church in my city where the pastor has said, if someone like me came to him for help, he would deny supporting me, even if it's a member of his own church. Mm. That's already happening. Nancy Piercy came up to speak, and she did a, wrote a wonderful book called Love Thy Body that deals exactly with these issues. My understanding is, from reliable sources, we had pastors who had brought her up to speak going through her speech and censoring parts of her presentation out of fear of a conversion therapy ban. Mm. So the, the, that, I, would, I would hearken back, and I know as an American audience I'm speaking to, ladies and gentlemen, this is the kind of stuff that these laws will do and why it's so critical for us to oppose them in the right kind of way. What, what, what's happening is what we've capitulated to the political sphere to let them decide how we can counsel, how we can love our LGBT neighbors in the name of Jesus, and how to teach our own kids what a biblical view of sexuality and gender looks like. And, and here's the point, Virginia, that we've been, you, you asked about how we've been reaching out to pastors and church leaders. That's what we're doing now. And one of the key messaging that we've given them is that we cannot be afraid to love people enough to share them good news. There was a, a sign actually in one of the municipal governments that we were working with to try to pass a better law in, in Lethbridge. And one of the protesters, the LGBTQ protesters, actually had a sign that said ban conversion, not ban conversion therapy, but ban conversion. And at the end of the day, that's what we have to recognize here. This law specifically prevents us from teaching and sharing Jesus with people to say, you know what, if you want to follow Christ, you have to change your behavior. You have to reduce behavior that is not God affirming. We can no longer do that for LGBTQ people, according to this criminal law. Mm. Well, and Mr. Rubit, you've mentioned your personal story a, a little bit during this conversation, but could you just share why why this this whole argument, this whole situation, this bill is so personal to you? Yeah, well, thanks, Virginia. I, I have to tell you, I hate actually speaking about it because I have not talked about this at all for most of my life. Mm -hmm. But when I was in university, I was leading a Bible study group and starting to realize I was falling in love with one of the members of our group. But it was a men's study group, mm -hmm. and that was a problem. Mm -hmm. I'm a pastor's kid. I'm a Christian. And I, I recognized there was something off in that. Uh, but understanding, too, that I needed God's grace and, and figuring out what, what that looked like. So when I went to see this counselor, as I mentioned, I, I talked to the staff worker at the Christian community that I was part of. And that was very important, by the way, for those of you who are parents or young people who are university, make sure you have Christian community at a secular university. That will protect you from so much. Uh, because what happened, actually, Virginia, was I actually met at that same club uh, a guy who was a computer scientist. And he had grown up in a home where his dad was a Baxan uh, Catholic, his mom was a Baxan Muslim, and he was very confused. Mm -hmm. And so he began to look at the different worldviews around him to see what he should believe in. And because he was a computer scientist, you know how they ought to uh, check the codes if some, something's not working? 
Well, that's what he did. He checked the different ways that these different worldviews uh, explained the creation of the universe, explained uh, where we came from as human beings. Why do we have morality? These kinds of truths. And he found out that Christianity, particularly evangelical Christianity, made the most sense and explained it the best. And that's why he became a Christian. And I met him the beginning of that uh, of my school, my university year, and and he introduced me to this idea uh, and this question that am I a Christian because my parents are Christian or am I a Christian because it's true? And so when I when I explored that, I realized Christianity is true, and and I got really passionate about apologetics. And so when I began to deal with my own same sex attractions, I realized that these are really difficult things to deal with, but I cannot change the truthfulness of the fact that Jesus lived, died, and rose again. And he has something to say about how I ought to behave in my life because he happens to be the creator of this universe and of myself. And so when I went to see that Christian counselor, I came there with a commitment knowing that what I believed is correct and that I ought to continue to believe that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also learned after a couple of counseling sessions, he wasn't perfect. He, <laughs> this was not going to take away all my attractions right away, which is, I think, what a lot of times people are confused about. And if we had more time, I can walk you through what we teach on this topic now, because obviously several decades of thinking through this, we've realized uh, there's a lot we can fix on that, that front mm-hmm. where we're not doing the kind of horrible things that they're accusing us of doing. Mm-hmm. What. I've seen Christian counselors uh, over the years as I moved around and, and really was just blessed to know that. And, and I even remember walking away from a counselor once, uh, driving home and saying, you know, this hasn't really fixed everything that I'm dealing with, but I'm so grateful that I have that option that I can always come back. Yeah. Having that choice is huge. Exactly. And it's my choice. Now, no one coerced me. No one forced me. My parents didn't even know until last year. Because last year, our city of Calgary was planning to have their own conversion therapy then. And I was remembering, I remember that we each, uh, everyone, anyone could come in and have a five-minute presentation to the city council. We were mobilizing all kinds of people of Virginia to speak. We actually had the largest number of uh, oral submissions on any issue in our province of over four and a half million people at any municipal government uh, until we had this one. We had the most and it was like over three days almost of, of submissions. And as I was writing my submission, I was really struggling to, to whether or not I, I ought to include my own story. Because again, very few people actually knew about it, including my family, mm-hmm. that I'd gone through this kind of counseling. But, but you know, I got a conviction, though, that um, as I was struggling with it, I, I was, was thinking, you know, what will people think about me? Will they label me according to all of these uh, identities on sexuality and gender that our culture is imposing on us, which is, by the way, this whole conversion therapy debate is forcing me to adopt a, se- a sexual identity that I choose not to, yeah. right? Um, and, and I realized, well, well wait a second. Uh, Jesus, when he, the, when he came to earth in the incarnation, came because he took on the identity of a hated race of people, was willing to take on their reputation so that he could save them, so he could help them. And if as, as his follower... I get labeled all kinds of things, but at least if I could speak truth and show that you can have these attractions, but you don't have to be those attractions. You can have homosexual attractions, but not identify as homosexual. That could be part of what I, I taught, that this is, was never my identity. This is something I've, I've had. It is not something that I am. And, and, and so, you know, coming out, I guess, is the way they say it, 
in front of a city council meeting on a conversion therapy bill is not the kind of thing most people want to do. <laughs> but I, I remember going through it and getting texts from friends like saying, really, this was true of you and, and not even knowing and, and thanking me for, for saying it. And I have to say, Virginia, I've been really blessed for the most part. Most Christians here have been so grateful to know that these stories exist and, and that we can actually share them because likely people in your own church mm-hmm. have struggled with this and are looking for help. Because uh, c- this is what's really insidious about this. All the surveys that are being done on conversion therapy here in Canada survey people who still identify as gay. So they, uh, the, one of the largest ones here surveyed people who went to gay bars, gay dating websites, who are part of gay advocacy organizations. And they claim 11,000 gay men have been tortured through conversion therapy in Canada. But again, if you look at the definitions of what it is, it's not the same thing as they're claiming. Not not torture for sure. But if you've actually been helped by this counseling, like I have, you're not going to appear in their surveys. (laughs) And you probably don't want to talk about it publicly. So our stories are never heard in these, uh, these debates and these surveys. And that's one of the reasons why when I finally shared this, I, I realized whatever the cost, and I was thinking, gosh, am I going to lose my job? What will people say, right? I, I realized this is this is worth it because there's such a huge need that this next generation, according to Newsweek of Generation Z, just in December, uh, reported that 40% of young people identifies LGBTQ. Wow. 30% of church-going kids also identify as LGBTQ. Wow. And so if the church doesn't know how to deal with this in a way where we show grace and truth, mm-hmm. then we're going to have a, a much harder time. And these kinds of laws will be passed all around the country. Mm-hmm. And, and, and just personally, you know, you asked a personal uh, question. I realized something as I, 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 as I thought through as a Christian why, what I believe. Because I, I accepted Christianity and know that it's true and have became a Christian because it's true. But... What I tell people, especially in light of my own struggles here, is that I stay a Christian because I know it's good, that the love that God has for me, the love that God has for humanity is so much better than any kind of quote-unquote love is love argument the other side has. And, And so it's critical for us now in our churches to teach especially young people that the biblical view of sexuality is good. It's life giving. Mm -hmm. And if we don't, if they don't embrace that, the other side is so zealous about their view because they think they're the good guys, because they think they offer something better. And and we really have to help our young people realize, no, God's designed for sex and, and gender, beautiful. It actually helps complete us. It makes us whole. And even as a celibate single man, I can speak to that to say, I'm, I know there's a sacrifice the culture has required of me, but the sacrifice is also, as Jesus said, the burden is light because of what Christ offers in the long run. Yeah. Well, thank you for so much for being willing to tell your story, because I, I do think that that's really, that's really where, um, where change can begin, with being honest mm-hmm. and, and real about you know, struggles that we have personally been through and having those mm-hmm. really authentic conversations those those are the conversations that actually I think start to shift culture in, in really positive ways. Agreed. Yeah. What are people in Canada saying overall about this bill? Are are people engaged? Are they concerned? Do they not care? Well, you know what what's happened. Uh, um, 
I shouldn't say ironically, but the people who are in the know are asking us questions about what they need to do. Mm-hmm. So that's great. Part of me says, you, you know, why didn't you ask sooner so you could have helped us fight the law, right? Uh, but, but at the very least, now they're starting. And, and my, my, our number one concern, in, in fact, Virginia, at Free to Care is that churches will get used to this law and not bother with it or comply with it and not realizing there's no way you can comply with a law that prevents you from evangelizing anybody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, and and that's part of the the shift, the push that we need to have in our churches. Most Canadians are happy with it because we have such a um, limited media that is so myopic; it only talks to themselves. They can't even fathom why anyone would be opposed to it. Okay. So, what's happened now, though, just breaking news, is the conservative leader who helped push for a unanimous vote in the first place, who is not an ally at all to what we're doing. Uh, he actually might be overthrown. He might lose his job because of how he handled that issue. Apparently, he bullied, and this is the reports. I'm, I'm, I'm not. I, I don't know, hundred percent sure, but there was reports of bullying of his own members of parliament to force them to not oppose the bill, and that's why there was unanimous consent. There was a, a one member of parliament who was the spearhead fighting this bill. And they managed to have this bill passed when he was in Europe at a conference, so he couldn't oppose it. Okay. So then given given that and given kind of the untraditional way that this bill was pushed through, is there momentum to overturn it? Is, is that a reality possible? Not in terms of the, the government apparatus. Okay. However, there is momentum. I think the Christian community is realizing something that it was Greg Kokel, one of my favorite Christian apologists in the state, said, it isn't that we as the church are getting involved in politics more. It's that the political world is getting involved in the affairs of the church. Mm-hmm. If they can tell us how to counsel our own church members, which is what this law does, that's a huge violation of the, the, the charter rights of Canadians. Uh, look, this bill even prevents a parent from talking to her, his, her five-year-old child about gender identity unless that parent affirms that child's gender confusion. Mm-hmm. So if a five-year-old girl says, I think I'm a boy, and the, the mom says, can we take you to, uh, to the pastor, to a Christian counselor? And even if the five-year-old says, yes, I'd love to talk to the pastor, and they go through counseling where they reduce that feeling of gender confusion, that is now conversion therapy. Mm-hmm. And the parents can go to jail for aiding and abetting conversion therapy. So then what's your message to people in America, because I think we we do often see that sometimes the things that are happening in Canada or, or in Europe, it's sort of a matter of time before we see some of those things uh, mm-hmm. take place in the U.S. Well, I've always thought, and and you probably figured out, a lot of Canadians know much more about American politics <laughs> than Can- the other way yes, around. That's accurate. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, we've, I've always thought Canada is sort of like the canary in the coal mine. So whatever happens here will likely happen in your country in the next five to 20 years, sometimes even sooner. Because the activists, especially because we speak the same language, we speak culture, we have the same similar cultural values. Uh, many of the Americans come in and work for politicians and vice versa. Uh, the messaging has to be you need to prepare yourself. We have uh, Christian so-called organizations uh, that are part of the LGBTQ movement that are actually training Christian leaders to infiltrate their own denominations to make them pro-LGBT. I've attended 
a seminar where this happens. So this is, again, not secondhand information. Uh, I talked to a, a, a principal at a Christian school, the one of the largest where I'm from, and when they had a gay-straight alliance club forced on them, and these clubs are political clubs promoting theological views of homosexuality that is contrary to Scripture, um, he didn't realize until this club was legally forced on them that half of his own teachers were now pro-LGBTQ. And when I, when I say pro-LGBTQ, I'm talking about not the people— I'm talking about the theology that says my sexuality defines me for who I am. It's the most important thing about me, which is not biblical. There's no way you can be a Christian and believe that something else needs to define you. That's idolatry. So the kind of teaching we offer, as, as you mentioned, our website is freetocare.ca, but we also have something called the identityproject.ca, where we actually go through what the nature of identity is from a biblical perspective. And if I could just summarize it really well, uh, we would love uh, to be able to bring this training to, to Americans because it's so critical to prepare your people now. The key line that we teach there, Virginia, is to really realize the Scripture actually talks about identity. One of the best examples about that is the Apostle John in the Gospels, when he referred to himself as the disciple that Jesus loves. And I thought, wow, what a great identity, right? He's defining himself by the, the love God has for him. And it's in clear contrast to the culture, because in a culture that says we're defined by who we love— John reminds us we're defined by who loves us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the key things that saved me from going down the deep end was because I realized whatever my attractions are, whatever I'm feeling, God's love for me is so much more important in defining my identity. And when you couple that, and here's a little factoid that we can, we'd love to share. The idea of sexual orientation itself is the social construct. Prior to 1860, the word heterosexual referred to people who were promiscuous with the opposite sex. And the word homosexual was created as a way to fight laws against homosexual practice in Germany. And these are gay historians and allies who are talking about this. This is not controversial. Yeah. In other words, we have adopted this mindset that we have to categorize people based on their sexual orientations or sexual identities. We as the church do not have to do that. And we have to remember that Jesus never loved identities. He loved people. Mm. And that's a distinction that we need to instill in our young people who are coming to us saying, I, I, I love my best friend who's a girl. This is a conversation I actually had, a 12, 13-year-old girl at a Christian school. I love my best friend who's a girl. And you can see her struggle with that phrase. And I said, you know, that that's okay. What kind of love is that? And she's like, philia love. And we had just talked about the nature of love before. And, and you could see the relief on her face mm. because she recognized she can now put an a, a appropriate label on the relationship she had, same-sex relationship we had, she had, and affirm that same-sex intimacy is not wrong. It's actually part of our design. God made us to need love from people of the same sex and the opposite sex. How do we know that? Because we all have a mom and dad, mm -hmm. right? And, and so that's the kind of narrative we have to create in the church to help us give a different way of, of thinking about sexuality than our culture does. Because as long as we leave that as a vacuum, that vacuum is going to be filled by people hostile to the message of Christ. Jojo Ruba, the Communications Director for Free to Care 
in Canada. If you want to learn more or follow Mr. Ruba's work, you can look him up and look up the work of Free to Care at Free to Care. Dot .ca and also again that other website is identityproject.ca Mr. Ruba thank you so much for your time It's been my pleasure Virginia anytime And that'll do it for today's episode. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Daily Signal podcast. As always, you can find the Daily Signal podcast on whatever app you prefer to listen to your podcast on. That includes Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Please be sure to leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts if you can, and encourage others to subscribe. Thank you again for listening, and we will be back with you all on Monday morning. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Virginia Allen and Kate Trinko. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, please visit DailySignal.com.